This morning, I think I'd like to start in Luke 17 and uh, think a little bit today about the kingdom of God and what it, I don't know that what it actually is or more like what it, some of the fundamental concepts that make up the kingdom of God, I think is maybe the best way to say it. Luke chapter 17 uh, is kind of the beginning of a section in Luke in verse 11 is where the section kind of begins and that there is a story of the ten lepers and Jesus heals all ten lepers but only one comes back and gives thanks. And I think what's kind of unique about how he gives thanks, uh, Jesus told them to go show themselves the priests. That means you're going to go to the temple, you're going to offer your sacrifices and whatever else. Well, when this man returned back to, to Jesus in verse 15, it says that uh, when he saw he was healed, he returned and with a loud voice glorified God. So it is, as he came back, it wasn't merely to come to Jesus and say, thank you so much for taking the time to heal us. He was actually glorifying God, which makes it rather interesting then that if he is going to glorify God, why didn't he just go to the temple then and glorify God? Why come back to Jesus and glorify God that way? Particularly if you think about it from the perspective that they would have seen it, that Jesus would have just looked like another man. And some of the concepts that we've talked about talked about in Luke, how people had a hard time grasping the fact that he was Messiah. They would have thought that he was John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the other prophets. So he looked like an average man. He didn't look like your average Messiah. He just looked like an average man. And so for him to run back then and associate glorifying God with falling down before Jesus is rather unique, but it's also accurate. The, the guy is, he's got it nailed. And and Jesus acknowledges that in verse 19. He says, arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. The man associated Jesus with God like they were tightly knit together. Now in verse 20 of chapter 17, the Pharisees asked Jesus, when would the kingdom of God come? And what they were looking for were things that were described, say, in Isaiah, early parts of Isaiah, uh, where God describes peace throughout the land. You have the, the child will be able to put his hand into the den of a viper, and the lion will lay down with the lamb and prosperity and all that. They were looking for that kingdom because they knew that the Messiah was going to usher in that kingdom, which he will. Uh, but they didn't realize that it wasn't going to happen at that time. But if you're the Messiah, when is the kingdom of God is it, I mean, it's got to be pretty close. That's what you're here for, right? But Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. Indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. In other words, you guys, at this time, you're not going to see the kingdom move across the land. You'll be able to say, Here is the kingdom of God. Over there, it hasn't quite reached. But, you know, say, Here at Jerusalem, the kingdom of God is established. It's not going to be like that. Then he turns in verse 22 and he says to the disciples, the days will come when you desire to see one of those days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. <clears throat> For as the lightning flashes out of one part of heaven, sorry, as the, as the, as the lightning flashes out of one, one part under heaven and shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things. The passage obviously flows 
but it seems almost like the topic changes midstream. They were talking about the kingdom of God, and then the Lord Jesus starts talking about, you'll be looking for one of those days of the Son of Man, and they will tell you he's, he's come or he's arrived or whatever. He says, don't believe him. When I come this next time, it will be like a lightning flash. You're going to have lightning flash on one part of the sky, particularly at night, and it will light up the whole sky. He says, that's what it's going to be like when the Son of Man comes. You won't be able to miss it. It'll be, it's not like the first time. The first time, nobody saw that the Son of Man came. But the next time, they will, and nobody will be able to miss it. And we know that at that time when he comes, that will begin the process of when he establishes the kingdom of God. He will uh, destroy his enemies and will set up his throne in Jerusalem. So the topic is still the same, actually, but his terminology has changed. He's not talking about the kingdom of God when it comes. You won't have to have somebody pointed out to you. He says, when the Son of Man comes. But he's talking about the kingdom. And so you see that the, in the flow of the passage here, what we, begin, what we begin to see is that the kingdom of God is tightly knit with the, the Son of Man. You're not going to have the kingdom of God without the Son of Man. He's no Son of Man, no kingdom of God. You have the Son of Man, you will have the kingdom of God established in that day. So, given then that that the kingdom of God is tightly linked with the Son of Man. Now, he told the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is actually in this present age. It's within you. It's in your midst. It's not going to be, in these days, it's not going to be established with boundaries, but it's going to be actually among you. And since it's tightly knit to the Son of God, those who have the Son of God, those who have Christ, are going to be those that are part of the kingdom. But they're going to be in your midst. They're not going to be a geographically tightly defined location, but it's going to be people associated with the Son of God. Now, later on in chapter 18, the, uh, there's a ruler that comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So his idea is, I want to gain eternal life. I've lived as a good Jew. You speak of something that goes beyond this life, the Jews, some kind of a relationship with God that is beyond what we have as Jews. I want that. I want this eternal life. And Jesus tells him uh, uh, tells him that, that uh, he, or he asks him a question about the Ten Commandments. says, you know, you know what the commandments are. And the, the rich man said, yeah, I've, I've done this. I've kept these things from my youth. And then Jesus says, well, you still lack one thing. You need to... You ought to sell all that you have and come and follow me. The rich man couldn't do that. And so Jesus' comment then as the rich man walked away in verse 24, when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now the man was asking about eternal life. How do I gain eternal life? Jesus says he's not able to enter in to the kingdom of God. And he says it twice, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus associates the kingdom of God with eternal life. You have eternal life, you're in the kingdom of God. That is, uh, the kingdom of God is, as it were, it is life. It's the man in living in his Jewish uh, uh, Jewish society amongst all the laws and the, the commands of God and so forth and the temple and all the services of God, 
in doing those things, uh, he was living the Jewish life. But he recognized that there, there had to be something more beyond the Jewish life. There had to be a, a uh, and he was right, because the Jewish life that God established at Mount Sinai was a shadow of things to come. It wasn't the reality that God would, uh, that God uh, intended for his people. There was a life beyond that. And, and Jesus referred to it as an eternal life. And it is linked to the kingdom of God. That when you are in the kingdom of God, you have entered into that life. That, that Jesus spoke of, that that rich man looked for. And that life is associated with Jesus. You're not going to have the kingdom without Jesus. Just like Jesus is associated, tightly linked with God, if you're going to come glorify God, you can better glorify God by going to Jesus than going to the temple, where God had established his name. He's just, he's that close to God. The same sen- In that same tight linked sense, he is the kingdom of God with Jesus and eternal life and the kingdom of God. So we as believers, we have entered into uh, a particular aspect of the kingdom of God. Now, there's still the kingdom of God that we look forward to when his reign is established on earth. But if you go into Acts and you start looking at the teaching of the apostles, they taught of the kingdom of God. That there is this age, the kingdom of God has a different form than what it will in a future age. This age has, and, and Luke will lay it out, especially particularly in this passage, he says the kingdom of God is not, at this age it's not in the earthly realm. The kingdom of God looks forward to a uh, the spiritual realm. It's more based on the spiritual side of things than on the earthly side of things. But what is this life then? If we can't see the spiritual side of things. All we know is the physical, because we're a physical body, and we have physical eyes. We can't see the spiritual side of things, nor touch it, nor feel it. Then what is this life, then, This, this in the kingdom of God, this eternal life? How does it express ourselves to us? How do we know that we are in the kingdom of God, or how do we pursue after the kingdom of God? And these are some of the things that I've been thinking about and thought we'd just talk about. Turn to Romans chapter 14. I happened to stumble across this verse a while back and I've thought about it for quite a while now. The different concepts that are in here. Romans chapter 14 is a good chapter to understand whenever you get into a discussion about whether or not you should observe a particular holiday. You know, like there's some people that say, ought not to observe Halloween because that's a devil's day. There's some people that say you ought not to observe Christmas because that is a, uh, it was originally a heathen holiday and it was Christianized. So to celebrate Christmas is to enter into idolatry. There's some people that say you ought not to celebrate Easter. Some people say you should celebrate Easter. Some people say you should celebrate Christmas. So when you get into those kinds of discussions, then Romans 14 is a good one to go into because it discusses different days, celebrating days, and it even talks about foods, eating different foods or not eating different foods, and how you're supposed to handle people that have a different opinion of you. Now, we're not going to talk much about that, but in verse 7, in the flow of the conversation, uh, Paul's point is going to be, uh, you're not the boss of your fellow believer. And so he says in verse 7, None of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. 
If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother, or why should you, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block across or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So he's talking about life here, living. We don't live to ourselves. If you're going to, you could, you could live to yourself and you'd become like the prodigal son when he uh, took his father's inheritance and squandered it. It's possible to live for yourself. He says that's not where we're at. We are, the Lord has uh, saved us. We live now to God. Life, our life is not like it used to be. It's a new life. It's living unto God. We don't answer to uh, a pastor or a priest or some other man or something like that. We answer to God. So he's talking about life. Living before God, and he continues then in verse 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if a brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So in the midst of this conversation, he slips in a little definition of what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is not of this earthly realm. It's not physically based like the Jewish religion was. The Jewish religion was about eating and drinking. They had certain foods that they could eat and certain foods they could not eat. But in this age, the kingdom of God is not so. It is not eating and drinking, it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness. Righteousness is key, is a key concept to the Christian belief. Things that we've been taught by the apostles. Righteousness is a big part in what we believe in. Romans chapter 4 spends, well, 3 and 4 and 5 spends a, <clears throat> a lot of time talking about righteousness. We could read in Romans 4, verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, is found according to flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what, is a, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. You might recall that this passage here, Paul is demonstrating and arguing that righteousness is received through faith. It's not You don't attain to righteousness by, by in, uh, improving your performance, that eventually you get to the point where you achieve righteousness. He says, no, it's given to you through faith, like for Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages... Are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So it's he's, he's pointing out that it doesn't say that Abraham 
believed God and, and so he earned righteousness, that would be wages. It wasn't wages, but it was accounted. In other words, it was given to him, unearned, that he was made righteous. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And he goes on and discusses, and this is something that we believe. You know, it's a central core of our belief that when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he accounts, credits us with righteousness. We have our righteousness. But when Paul talks about the kingdom of God, his righteousness, he's not just talking about entering the kingdom of God, he's talking about living in the kingdom of God. Uh, if we were to stop in at Romans 8, we would, or rather chapter 9, we would notice that Paul points out the difficulty that Israel had, that Israel was trying to attain righteousness by the works of law. That was their whole lifestyle, was making sure you kept the feasts and going to the temple when you're trying to achieve this righteousness. And he said they never did make it. And the Gentiles attained righteousness, he says, but how did they get righteousness? It all came by faith. It was through faith that it came. If we go to Galatians, we were to, we would see that Paul asked the question, like, look, if you started in faith, that's how you attained your righteousness, you attained your salvation, was through faith. Then do you think that you're going to attain righteousness then by the works of the law? He said, what you, if you started by faith, do you think you're going to continue on by keeping works? The point he makes is that if you start by faith, in righteousness, then living in righteousness in the kingdom of God is also going to be by faith. The secret to attaining righteousness as a Christian is not by improving your performance. And the, gent and the uh, Galatians fell into that trap. They thought that they had to keep the law. So you can turn to Philippians uh, chapter 3, where Paul really lays this out and describes what it is to live in righteousness as a believer, as part of the kingdom of God, what this righteousness is. Chapter 3, he opens up and he, he warns uh, his readers about these, these men who are trying to bring him into uh, kind of a legalism, for lack of a better word. And then he goes on and he says, look, you, you know, you want to try to improve yourself. He says in verse 4, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. What he's doing here is he's listing things that most people would account and say, these things uh, make you a delight to God. Because that's what we're trying to aim for. We, we know that God appreciates holiness. He's called us to holiness. He's called us to righteousness, to live righteously and so forth. And so a lot of times we start to think then that if I can just live righteously, God will delight in me. 
But if I can't live righteously, then God's not going to delight in me. So these things that Paul lists here are things that would normally be considered something that God would delight in if a person had these things. If he was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, if he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, if he was concerning the law of heresy, concerning zeal, unmeasured zeal, when he talks about persecuting the church, like his zeal to do what was right was unhindered by any social stigma that might be attached to it. You know, to go out and persecute and miss a group of people, a lot of people are going to look at that, what are you, you're going crazy, man. What's No, I'm zeal, zealous for God. That was his level of righteousness. So that your zeal makes you do things that people mock you for, that's where he went, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. All things that would normally be considered something that God would delight in, and he says, what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Now he's talking, obviously, about his salvation, that when he came to Christ, he left all of these things that he specifically lists. But in verse 8, he speaks in the present tense. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So he's talking now present tense that all things he counts with rubbish. He's looking for the righteousness of Christ alone. He's not looking for something that he can do whereby God will find delight in him. He is looking at the righteousness of Christ as that if he is in the righteousness of Christ, then God will delight in him. Because as he continues, he says, look, God has called us to a really high, lofty goal of holiness. And he says in verse 12, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected. I'm not there. I press on that I may lay hold. It's not that I just not try, but I know I'm not there. I press on that I may lay hold for that which Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching for those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's pressing towards that goal of holiness. But he recognizes, I'm not there. And yet God delights in me. Why does God delight in me? Because of the righteousness of Christ. Even if I do attain, says Paul, say I reach some level and I get to some point where uh, I have something in which I could boast. I count that but lost. I want the righteousness of Christ only. Nothing that I do, nothing, no performance, nothing that I can accomplish in this body will I use to seek for the delight of God. All aside, only Christ. This is something to aim for in the kingdom of God. Something to strive. It's, it's difficult. Uh, we want we want to be holy. We want to do what is right. The Holy Spirit inside of us draws us towards that. It's one of the I think one of the indicators of the Holy Spirit inside of you is that you want to do what's right because it is right. 
Not because you're going to get punished if you do what's wrong, but because simply because it's right, you want to do what's right. That there's a desire inside. But what Paul is writing about here is he's saying, look, if you think that by doing right, you're going to gain the favor of God in your Christian life, like he's going to look on you as some great believer, he says, you know what a mature believer does? Therefore, let us, as many as mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you. A mature believer is one who recognizes he has not attained. He falls short. But God delights in him because of the righteousness of Christ. This is the, the kingdom of God. To be in the righteousness of Christ. That's why it's so hard for that rich man. If he was going to try to keep those ten commandments. And by keeping them. Attain to a level of righteousness. Whereby God would then receive him into the kingdom. It's not going to work. Because it will be his righteousness. He's not going to be dependent upon the righteousness of Christ. The kingdom of God is not me and my performance. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, being in the kingdom of God requires his righteousness. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Peace of God. Still in Philippians, then, in chapter 4, is where Paul talks a little bit about the peace of God. So if there was something else I want to say, too. Oh. there, though, let's go back to Ephesians. Ephesians is a passage that talks a little bit about the peace of God. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, were called uncircumcision by what is, by what is called a circumcision. Anyhow, what he's saying is that the you guys are called uncircumcised by the Jews. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So before, under the Old Testament, the Gentiles were outside. The only way they could come to God is through the Jews. You had to come in, into the land of Israel to get to the temple. And you had to meet with the Levites, and they had to go through the priests and all Jews in order to get to God. And he says, you were who were once far off. That's changed now. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, 
that is, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create to himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. So through him we both have access by one spirit to, to the Father. This kind of peace we readily understand. He's talking about two different people groups and who are normally antagonistic towards each other. I mean, it's been that way throughout history. The Gentiles have always hated the Jews, and the Jews have always looked down on the Gentiles and hated the Gentiles. And so to remove that enmity so that now you have one group of people who get along and enjoy each other's company, that is peace. Uh, and this peace is found in the Lord Jesus Christ through the body of his flesh and so forth. And so that's a peace that we enjoy, a peace that we see, a peace that's part of the kingdom of God, a peace that sometimes we struggle with. Sometimes we have people in our lives who we know are believers, but we have difficulty getting along with these other believers. Well, what's interesting to me is that the peace that God talks about in the kingdom of God is not just getting along, but there's a peace. How do you, you know? How do you learn to get along with somebody that you have a hard time getting along with? <laughs> well, Philippians chapter four brings us to another level of peace where it's not just among people between one person and another person. He says uh, in verse 6 of chapter 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. So he's talking about peace on an individual level. This isn't just, he's not talking about how you interact with other believers. He's talking about in your own personal life, if you have anxieties, if you have things that are difficult, that it is possible for the peace of God to enter your heart and for the anxieties then to not bother you anymore, but that you find inner peace. And what he describes here is, uh, it's not, he's not talking about merely the absence of anxieties. He's talking about a real peace in the midst of circumstances that would normally cause anxiety. It's a peace that God gives. I want to reference a statement of the Lord in uh, the Gospel of John, in chapter uh, was 14. Yeah, chapter 14. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all the things which I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the, world's give, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He talks about a peace that he gives. 
And it's different than the peace that the world gives. Now, if you're talking about inner peace, the world has a method by which you can achieve inner peace. And it's probably demonstrated most popularly through yoga type of thing. It's where you sit cross-legged, you put your fingers together, and you hum a monotone tune. And basically what you're trying to do is push all thoughts out of your mind. Just empty yourself. And the idea is that peace is the absence of conflict, right? If you can get all conflicting thoughts, all anxious thoughts, all thoughts all together out of your mind so that you just have nothing there and you achieve some level of peace. Jesus says that's not the kind of peace that I give you. His peace is not a peace that is just the absence of conflict or the absence of anxiety. That's like saying to somebody who owes money, says, oh, you want to make, you want to become rich. Well, all you have to do then is have an absence of debt and you'll be a rich man. You have absence of debt, you got nothing. To be a rich man, you have to have money. You have to, it's not just an absence of debt, but it's having something. That's the kind of peace that God gives. It's not just an absence of anxieties, but it's a real peace that passes understanding. It's something you can't really make, you can't dissect it, you can't really tell it, but you can tell the reality of it that even in a place where there's, uh, like, he's, like Jesus says, like in the world you have trouble. You're going to be in the world. The world is going to cause you lots of headaches, but it's possible I can give you peace so that in the midst of trouble you have peace. It's a, it's a real thing. And, you know, even, say, like in Colossians, uh, he says in, in chapter 3, verse 14, but above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are called in one body, and be thankful. The peace of God, for an individual to have peace, then makes it possible to have peace with other people you don't get along with. Because the peace of God is not just an absence of conflict, but it's something that's real and has the ability to flow over out of personal peace into relational type of peace. It's something that God gives. You can see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 16, right towards the end of it, Paul makes the statement as kind of a closing statement, as a, uh, a closing, whatever, you know, closing to the letter. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always and every way. The Lord be with you all. So the apostles and the believers, they recognize that God would give them this thing called peace that brought rest inside the soul. In the midst of turbulent circumstances. It's a real thing. That's why in the beginning of the letters, as they wrote, they would say, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. We know grace is a real thing. We know mercy is a real thing. Peace as well is a real thing. This was not just a uh, customary greeting. To them it was real to have Peace inside from God. That is part of the kingdom of God. It's righteousness, not my own, but being in the righteousness of Christ. It's peace that is there in the midst of conflict. And finally, it's joy. Joy in the Holy Spirit. 
There's a couple of passages that reference joy. Uh, Romans has has a particular passage in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is where he talks about how God demonstrates his love towards us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He mentions that in verse 8. And then he talks about, you know, now that we're being, now that we're currently justified, how much more will God keep and save us from wrath through him? And then he says in verse 10, if we were, if, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. He talks about how this salvation that God has provided, the fact that God is willing to save a sinner like myself. While I am in my sin, he is, even then, he will save me. That this, it brings rejoicing. Back in... uh, in Ephesians, I think it was Ephesians. Except for I'm not remembering where the one in Ephesians is at, so I'm going to we'll go to Philippians. In Philippians, in chapter 3, he was talking about the uh, that concept of righteousness of Christ and resting in that righteousness of Christ. And then he talks about, uh, at the end of chapter 3, uh, verse 20, our citizen, citizenship is in heaven, from which we, from all, from which we also wait, eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working which he's able to even to subdue all things unto himself. This, as Paul looks for the, the richness of life, he says, what I see is that I'm resting in the righteousness of Christ, which we just already talked about in chapter 3, and then also at the end, and then I'm looking forward to when he returns and the salvation is completed. This is the process that he has began in delivering us from judgment and wrath to sin and implanting us with the Holy Spirit, uh, one day he's going to complete the work when he comes in glory, and we will fully enter into all the the, uh, the richness of what he has to offer. And then he says in verse 4 of chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. His joy is rooted in the reality that God has saved him and that God will save him. It is rooted in the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ's righteousness has been imputed to him and that the Lord Jesus Christ will bring him into righteousness. That brought him joy. And what I find is that there's a lot of things that bring me joy or happiness in this life. You know, maybe if I if I improve my performance and now I'm acting the way that I ought to act, or maybe if I 
uh, my football team wins, or maybe uh, you know all these different things that'll bring. And if it doesn't happen, like you know your football team, I remember one time. I, don't know, I was watching some key game or something like that, and my football team lost. And it was like two or three days of depression afterwards. And I was like, and afterwards, I was like, that was really stupid. But it was there. I mean, my joy was rooted in whether or not my team won. Of all stupid things. For the apostles, their joy was rooted in the fact that God was willing to save them, despite who they were. When I was still a sinner, He extended His love towards me. passage too that talked about the joy and it was the same kind of concept of a joy based on uh, based on the salvation that we received in the Lord Jesus Christ and if you look, if you look through the epistles actually you'll find out at least what I noticed is that you'll see a point where it's like a crescendo as the apostle writes it builds up to this wonderful marvelous truth that they rejoice in and that they're so thrilled about and inevitably, that truth will be the truth of salvation. Like they were excited that they were saved. And that, to them, was a source of real joy. And, it, and because of that, it didn't matter so much what their circumstances were. It didn't matter if their football team lost. It didn't matter if they were being persecuted because their life, whether or not their life was going really well, was kind of irrelevant to their joy. The joy was in the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ had saved them. These are the things that make up the kingdom of God. Righteousness, joy, and peace. Our righteousness, peace, and joy. The righteousness that we find in Christ, not in our own ability to improve our performance. He's the one... I mean, he's, he's the one that's done what is righteous. He's the one that went, when he did what he did, God delighted in him, delighted all that he did. I can't do anything, in fact, I, I can't do anything that would match anything that Jesus did. I can't even do anything similar to what he did. Uh, it seems like I'm always going into sin. There's nothing that I can do. I mean, I'm like Paul. Paul never attained to that level of moral perfection. I clearly have not attained that level of moral perfection. So why do I think then sometimes that if I do really well, then God will delight in me? You know, who God delights in are those who realize that they're sinners and they need a Savior just like the Lord Jesus Christ and they trust in him. God delights in those people. That righteousness is the kingdom of God. And to live in the kingdom of God, uh, in, a, in a kingdom, you know you have a successful kingdom when your enemies are no longer attacking. You're able to keep the enemies out. You're able to keep peace within the land and everybody lives harmoniously. That happens when people themselves are at peace. 
that peace is not something that we try to generate inside of our hearts. Like I look inside of my heart and I see myself all turbulent. I'm like, okay, I need to calm down. I need to quiet down. I need to bring back peace inside of my life. No, it's a peace that comes from God. Not a peace that we can understand. It's not a peace that we can manufacture. It's a peace that we ask for. And you don't ask for it as an entitled type of a way, but you ask it in humility, recognizing that I ought not to have peace because of the sin in my heart. But to ask anyhow, knowing that he is a God of mercy, and seek that peace that God gives, and joy is part of the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our Savior. He has saved us. One day we will see the fulfillment of the kingdom of God and we'll be in it and there'll be all kinds of things to rejoice in. But the core of all rejoicing is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has saved us. These are the things that make up the kingdom of God and uh, these are the things that he has accomplished for us. And these are the things then that we look for. Let's close. Our Father, we come before you and just thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. Just a lot that he has done in, in bringing us salvation to, to wash away our sins, but also the hope that we look forward to of being in glory, a place of rest. We just thank you for him and we ask that you would open our eyes to grab on to the realities that are in him that we might enjoy the benefits of the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name.